Hi, welcome to Infinite Leaders Live. My name is Lewis Keynes and our why is simple. We want to be better educators and be better humans. We want to support and encourage infinite learning for everyone regardless of their rank or role to be willing to listen and learn. I'm joined as ever by my pal Alan. Thanks Lewis and, and really looking forward to diving deeper into understanding how leaders with an infinite mindset translate this across to their teams. We want to focus on the things you don't get taught at university or in any courses real-life lessons from real-life people with real-life experience. And we're learning as well. We're recording live as well. And, and as we go through, I'm sure there'll be a few mistakes. But we'd love your feedback. Um, anything that you feel we can do better, please let us know. Anything that you feel we do well, equally, we'd love to hear about that. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us on Instagram. And you can find us individually, Alan and I, on Twitter as well. Please remember to visit theinfinitelearners.com as well, where you can find everything that we start to try and pull together from our show and from the different webinars and articles that we've been doing. And um, today we're going to introduce our guest, um, somebody that I met, one of the first people I met outside of the school that I worked in when I joined the Forbesia region seven years ago. Alan? Yeah, get your pens and papers ready. There's going to be some absolute gems of wisdom today. Uh, Nick Dunn is an educator with 25 years experience working in the private sector and international schools in the UK and across Southeast Asia. He's currently the Director of Activities and Community Operations at UWC East Campus in Singapore. And in his younger days, Nick trained as a gymnast and was lucky enough to represent Great Britain and Ireland at many senior international competitions and the Commonwealth Games. So welcome, Nick. And give Hi, us Nick. a little bit about your journey to UWC, please. Yeah, sure, guys. Uh, thanks very much for inviting me on. It's great to see you guys. I've been following all of your podcasts uh, so far, so really nice to be invited. Um, I suppose probably I'll, I'll give you the short version. I've done quite a lot in my life and career up to my old age of 47. So I'll probably start with, obviously I'm from Northern Ireland um, to begin with. Um, sport has really kind of been part of my life, I suppose since I was seven years old. I started gymnastics at that point. And I suppose there is luck in all of these things. And I was extremely lucky, lucky to have the National Center for men's gymnastics was in my hometown. So during that time, I just, you know, continued with the sport and actually was on a high performance pathway by about 10 years old. Um, I would kind of question that maybe now in terms of age and, and uh, um, um, the development pathways, but it is an early specialization. So during that period, I was sort of training probably over 20 hours a week. And by 12, 13 years old, I was third in GB and on, a, on, on that kind of um, elite pathway. During those teenage years, like all of us, it became you know, a little bit difficult. My 15, 16, just like everybody, the challenges you have, education, friendships, and so on. But I still stuck at it, um, dug deep, and continued my training, and was offered a scholarship um, to study sports science at Loughborough University, uh, and also to continue my training. So, when I moved to Loughborough, ironically, they didn't have a full-time gymnastics facility, which they do actually now. Um, I uh, resumed my training at Nottingham. So in Nottingham, they had a high-performance center there. Um, and that was when my sort of senior international career really started off. I was coached under a Russian coach and a coach called Barry Winch, who still is a coach there now. Um, and I sort of really stepped up that training during, the, during that period of time. Um, while also trying to cover my university. Uh, the course 
I was at, this was during the very early 90s to show how old I am, but it was at that time that Loughborough was kind of really probably quite of a stronghold for sport. So I was really lucky to collaborate and, and meet and be friends with some really fantastic kind of, I suppose, now you would say quite famous people. Paul Radcliffe was in my class, Ben Ryan, Paul Burke, uh, and, and so on. I, I could go on, but these are people who are friends and, and it kind of just put me on a different perspective of what sport was and the development of it um, and the focus. So during those period at university, that's when I sort of um, actually transferred over from GB to Ireland um, to, to compete for Ireland um, and got my first senior cap at the World Student Games. Um, following that and a number of other Grand Prix, uh, I had a discussion actually with a real mentor of mine at, at Loughborough. His name was um, David Kerwin, and he was like a top head biomechanics um, professor um, in the UK and, and still is actually. He writes about 20 papers a year on, on uh, um, biomechanics with, throughout, throughout individual sport. And I, I basically was discussing with him about where my plans were. And it was during, this was during 1993. And Commonwealth Games were coming up in 94, European Championships and so on. And I sort of I came into the, the decision and the, the pathway that I was leading and being able to study and really train and compete at the same time was just, it was not, it wasn't easy. So we discussed it and I decided to defer a year. So I took a year out, trained full-time in Nottingham, competed at the Commonwealth Games, competed at the European Championships, and so on. And then following that, I went back, finished off my final year at Loughborough, um, and at the same time still training, because that was now 1995, um, and um, was wondering, what am I going to do at the end of, the, at the end of uh, Loughborough? So decided that I wanted to continue training, but also in education. So I signed up for a postgraduate at Cambridge. Um, during that time at Cambridge, um, in the interview process, it was decided that because World Championships were in October, I wasn't going to be able to spend enough time at the college for study. So I had to defer another year. And also World, the World Championships in 95 were the final Olympic qualifiers for Atlanta 96. So it was sort of a decision of mine, okay, I'm gonna go for the world. If I get to the Olympics, I just continue. If I don't, I'll, I'll see what happens. So went to the world, deferred Cambridge. So I was already on that course for the year after. Um, and unfortunately, and ironically, a day before the competition at the Worlds, I broke my ankle, um, which meant that um, I missed out on the competition and I suppose missed out on any chance of really kind of, you know, getting to Atlanta. So it is what elite sport's like. Um, what happened then is I moved back to Ireland and I was coaching as national coach for a year there. Uh, I'm really kind of waiting to go to Cambridge and, and developing that kind of side. Um, then moved basically to Cambridge, had stopped gymnastics because it took a year for rehabilitation of my ankle. And I sort of decided that I don't think I could have waited around for another four year cycle. Of uh, for because I was still amateur. It was at the it was the at the time when um, we didn't we didn't have lottery funding, so I was sponsored a little bit, but not not enough for me to get through another four years of training and and trying to get through. So um, did one more competition at Cambridge, and that was the Oxbridge, which is the Cambridge Blues event, Cambridge versus Oxford, and that was my final competition. 
Um, and then moved into, in, into education, really. I, I, I moved to London. I worked in a very prestigious um, private school there for five years. But during that period of time, I was not really focused on teaching. I was kind of at the point of passionate about elite, passionate about high performance. So I was nearly coaching in a private school. The traditional way that kind of boarding and private schools were, where everybody would play that sport, everybody would compete, everybody was representing in that school. Um, so that's what I did. I also developed gymnastics in the, in the school. Um, we were the national UK champions for three years in a row. Um, not, you know, my philosophy has changed a lot actually since that, since that point, but it, it is what it is and it was a fantastic school and I, I wouldn't look back and it still is. Um, uh, actually, Prince, uh, Prince William actually has his kids at that school in London right now. Uh, Shrewsbury International School then, I moved to Bangkok. We wanted to travel myself and my girlfriend at the time. So Shrewsbury International School was um, just opening up. So we decided to go there and it was a pure startup. So it was a very, very exciting period of time, um, starting a school fresh with only 300 students um, and staying at that school, initially as a head of PE, moving as a director of sport, and then as a member of SMT, um, following um, a number of years at the, at the school. So that was, that was a really interesting experience, developing programs from scratch all the way through to the school after 12 years, being of a cohort of about 1,900 students. So then moved to UWC East, had a fantastic opportunity there to come across here to be a chair of activities. Um, my values have changed quite a lot. I think that's a lot of that's been due, due to UWC East and its mission and, and core values are the places on lifelong learning. Um, and uh, that's where I've been ever since. And, and now I'm starting to move in my new role moving a little bit more away from sport, but still under the activities model where I'm really trying to focus on creating those passions for students, development, and really what 21st century learning really looks like. So maybe that was a little bit longer, but there's a lot to get through there, guys. But that's where we're at right now, and I'm, and I'm now finishing my fifth year at UWC. Tell us, Nick, tell us how those values have changed from those days of uh, looking at sport from, from elite lenses and then to, to now being at UWC East and seeing that so differently. Tell us about that journey and why it's so different now. So, well, I mean, as I said, to start with, I think basically, as I said, from initially, from a high performance kind of background, that idea was always my passion, you know, to be, you know, be the best that I can be. But ultimately, I was very focused, committed, determined, and, you know, all, always about trying to push that boundary. So, that's what I was used to. I was used to coaching. Initially, I was a coach. I was a national, a national coach um, in Ireland for a period of time. So when I, was, when I kind of moved into education, when I was doing that at, um, at Cambridge, the, I was, what I found interesting about that throughout the course studies elements and also learning about the other different sports um, as a teacher um, was looking at what, what I could do and the passions that I have. But deep in the back of my mind, there was still this elite pathway and I still felt that I had still more to give. So moving to a private school system um, in the UK, it was very much based on uh, the way private schools were at that time. You know, you're marketed on your sport, 
you know, the, the, you know your win and losses are very important. Um, and that was kind of a driving force. And that was something that you were trying to build and you're trying to, you know, make better. And even when I moved to Shrewsbury, because um, it was a startup, I tried to build that program relatively quickly because I kind of knew how to do that. Um, and I had experience of doing that and I knew how to make success happen very quickly, but with small numbers of, 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 of students, you know, I'm not looking at really the bigger picture. So I think over time, as I started to look at things and read more around it, and I think reading was a, was a, was a key thing with me and building on um, relative age effect, looking at um, reading, reading from um, uh, Dave Collins, I'm not sure if you're aware of him and what talent, talent ID is like, and about what that should look like within school environments. And actually just looking at what, what is it that really matters. You know, throughout all of the studies, we know for a fact that when students leave high school, a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of these students are actually going to go on and compete in these traditional sports. But ultimately, the majority of people, when we talk about sports and physical activity when they're older, it's about fitness, right? It's about fitness. It's about, you know, yoga base. It's about lifelong learning within those kind of areas. And yes, ultimately, a byproduct of that is, is competitive sport. So that's how my values changed and so on. And, and at UWC, our values of collaboration, resilience, critical thinking, suppose these IB learner profiles are just really resonate with how we can build a student and make them be a successful all-rounded individual. And I think that's how my change, change process happened within, within my head. But the, the, the byproduct of it is UWC East is still a very competitive school. You know, you know, CSAC, which is our Asian conference, our under-19 Asian conference, I mean, we're still pretty much top three in all of those sports, but that's not what our focus is. Our focus is about building foundation, about, it's about building a development platforms, you know, non-competitive in the junior school, minimal competition in the middle school, and then only in the high school we create this kind of environment where there is competition, but we try very much to not make cuts in the program. So, so I suppose that's where I'm coming from in terms of how my thoughts before we probably would have had lots of cuts in the UK for the A teams in Shrewsbury even a little bit. And now my, my philosophy has changed in, in that view for sport. Alan's doing his mute trick again. Try that again, pal. Sorry, mate. Um, yeah, Johnny, I just, it resonates really, really strong with, with what we tried out at BSM about cutting. And we have a debate about what's the difference between coaching and teaching quite a lot. Could you just maybe just put some, some meat on those bones? What do you think the difference is between teaching and coaching? Um, it's actually quite interesting, that kind of question, because something that you guys sort of tried to start to implement at BSM and something the PE department is doing here at um, UWC East is they're looking at PE um, as separate to sport, right? So PE, so PE in a sense is probably more aligned to PSE in some ways rather than the actual, you know, obviously physical activity part and the education of that is really key. Um, but it's more aligned to that rather than the, the, the sports side of things. So, um, you know, it, it took me time to think 
about that because I said as I came up from that traditional background background of like why why can't the kids do why can't the kids do like a you know a, um, you know a good layup shot why don't they know how to do correct defensive play in a, in in basketball why are they not doing that in the grade six lesson and it took time for me to understand and think about it really and do a lot of reading behind it and understand that actually that's actually not that important those those things will come when they move into the programs after school, if they want to do that. It's about the concept, it's about the understanding and the transfer, transference of skills. So the PE department in, a, in, to, to, in um, probably over in, in a sense are not actually, a lot of them aren't even coaching that much at, at UWC East. They are offering maybe wellness, nutrition um, um, activities, or helping to develop uh, weight training or understanding about talent, talent development. But they're not all teaching, or sorry, they're not all coaching like under 19, 18 or sports teams. Because the idea is that's not what their focus is. Their focus is um, concept-based teaching, aligning that with the values at the, at the college. And yes, if they have a passion that they to still support within the activity program they can do that so there are obviously somebody you know coaches who teach PE teachers who are interested in coaching basketball of course they help out but then there's some who who, who aren't you know and, and they want to offer something else whereas when we come to coaching which is what part of our job is in terms of the activities team we're looking at coaches who are going to be yes focusing on those goals and values that we find important from a UWC perspective, but they're lining it a little bit more to the to sport. So it's more about that sport element where competition, yes, that's at the end goal, but it's not the main goal. It's actually looking at those parts. And we do this at the start of every year. So through our coaches meetings, we do um, goal setting with students. We do um, uh, goal setting with coaches as well. And actually trying to make sure they're aligning to the UWC core values and, and the plans. So by doing that, we're able to try and make sure that the students are going to be able to be the best that they possibly can be. Whether that's competition or not, it doesn't matter. And, and this, as I said, I run the whole activity program. So outside of sport, that's the exact same thing. So in drama, it may be a student who just wants to get on stage for that first time or learn a song, or it may be somebody who wants to try to get to rather. It's more about building um, students to be be the best that they can be, but whatever that is, dependent on looking at, at their achievements rank, rather than that one-size-fits-all approach. So what, what's, what's your why for what you're doing at the moment, Nick? What, what, what really gives you your passion? Is it still that brass tacks of, of competitive sport and trying to get in there and develop that? Is it more values-based now? You've said you've been on that journey of changing what you feel is important. Or, or do you lie somewhere in between those? Yeah, I mean, I love the golden circle, Simon Sinek. <laughs> the why, you know, the, the why, what and how kind of thing. And that's something that I'm always thinking about. I'm continually thinking about, you know, why are we doing this? What's the, what's the bigger picture thinking with this? Why, you know, and each, each year, I mean, I have a very strong six-year strategic plan. And, you know, we discuss at length as a department about, you know, what is the why this year? What are we looking at? Why are we trying to do this? What are we trying to achieve? For me, the why is so far from being the best CSAC team. 
I, I really don't care. I honestly, honestly don't care. I think for some high school students, some under 19 students, that is still the extrinsic motivation of why they want to compete. You know, they're, it's their last year, they're grade 12s, it's the last year of college, they want to make that CSAC team. And that's okay, that's okay, because for some of them that might be the last time they do compete. But I think when we're looking at the whole program and what we're trying to achieve, that's, that's down the line for me, really down the line. For me, I want the kids to be passionate, I want them to have friends, I want them to develop, I want them to have physical literacy elements where they can transfer, I want them to um, develop resilience, I want them to develop, you know, we talk about resilience or grit or mental toughness, those transferable skills which are going to help them develop in later life. Fantastic if they go on and, and uh, do sport at university. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, we've got four swimmers who've got N four, uh, NCAA scholarships for next year. Don't get me wrong. I love competition. I, I enjoy that. I, you know, I like to see the kids do, doing the best that they can, but it's not my own individual goal. It's a byproduct. So, you know, and sometimes that's quite difficult being a director of activities or like you guys, a director of sport. People are always like, why are you not really angry? You know, we didn't win or what, you know, you know, this kind of thing. And, and, and you know, as we know, that's, a, you know, failure is just as important as, as winning, right? You know, basically that's a speed bump in the way. That's a learning journey for the students. And, and it's trying to make that education right for the coaches and building, building that understanding of those values, especially with our external coaches is really, really important. And that takes up a lot of time because it's about culture. Alan? Yeah, cheers. I'm really interested to, to explore about the concept-based learning you're doing at, at UWC and, and you, the transferable skills. How is that embedded into the curriculum to get the students to your why? That, that would be the interesting one for me. So, I mean, probably best if you talk to the PE department, because I don't work in the PE department, but I know, um, I mean, I know a little bit, it's, it's, taken, it's basically, it's taken them four years to develop the concepts. Yeah. Um, UWC has um, been doing um, uh, academic articulum, or articulation for the last 15 years, building their own curriculum. So they've got a separate curriculum, which is um, set aside, which is, build it, which is built around concepts. So this is embedded in all areas of school life. So PE have been doing the same thing. So they, they focus the concepts on kind of three different areas. There's physical skills, there's strategies, concepts, there's uh, uh, personal, like personal and social well-being. Um, and uh, there's one other extra one which I can't remember off the top of my head. But those, those areas are what we would call the, the concept base or the standards. And then through the course of the units, they would focus on specific areas, those over the course of the year. So it might be similar a little bit to what BSM are doing where they're focusing on the concepts and then the idea of that the students are, can work towards achieving those um, concept-based uh, attitudes and focus uh, approaches to learning um, throughout the course of the year and then that and then so the why for them is that understanding rather than actually looking at the achievement of a skill or something like that so as I said with with in terms of activities in terms of sports after school um, we aren't down that way yet we 
we did we haven't articulated at a curriculum as such in our um, activities program however it's something that is quite a focus for me for next year of actually looking at you know how do we monitor and how can we see learning in activities how do we monitor learning how can we you know how do we know the students are engaged uwc east we have 640 activities on campus we have 135 competitive sports teams it's a massive program but just having a number doesn't mean anything. You know, how do we know that the students are having any learning in there? Or, you know, is, is that feedback happening? Are the students committed? Are they actually creating learning within it? And that's it's a key thing that I'm focusing on next year. And we're going to be looking at things um, uh, where we're going to focus on ATLs, which is approaches to learning and focusing on those sorts of areas with, with students within the activity programs. And also looking at doing... Um, uh, having portfolios and linking that and letters home. So creating a sense that the activities programs are not assessed. Assessment is, is the wrong word, but they're, we're actually able to look for the learning and they're actually seeing that engagement because rather than, okay, I'm going to chess for every day for a year, but what have you actually done? Well, I'm not really sure. So that's, that's how we're looking at that side. And the long-term goal to be for that to be concept-based as well, and that to come back to those same principles that you have across school. I think that's I think that's a really good it's a really good discussion because I think there is that question. You know, do we need to for activities? Yeah. You, you know, is is are those key key values that we're talking about? You know, critical thinking, collaboration, resilience, um, commitment to care. Maybe they're just skills that are happening in the program, right? Yeah. Maybe. Are you just providing an opportunity for yeah. people to actually put those into practice and transfer them, which is what they're developing within your curriculum? I, yeah. I, can, I can certainly see that side of it. Just to, to jump back to what you mentioned earlier, you've talked a lot about values and concepts. As a, as a leader and, and as somebody who's going into to real senior leadership post at UWC into next year, what are the core values that you stand by on a day-to-day -day basis and that, that you feel are really important? I think, uh, I think as, a, as a leader, for me, the number one thing for me is, is, is integrity. Um, having those moral principles and, and living by them. And I suppose connected with integrity is, is empathy. Um, you know, like yourselves, you're, you're working with huge teams of people um, directly or indirectly linked, but you're still line managing them. So having empathy and being able to see People from different perspectives, I think, is really, really crucial in that. Um, working internationally as well, you know, there's there's cultural diversity, um, and actually understanding each and each individual from 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 their side and understanding their culture and development, and it's a key thing I've been working on this year. It's really important, I think, as as, as a leader. Um, for me, strength and courage is also pretty important, and we touched on it um, offline. Vulnerability. So, you know, you're, you're, you're showing vulnerability, you know, we're, as you said, we don't, we, don't, we, we don't know everything and there's lots to learn from everybody. Um, so I suppose with that, being vulnerable, it's valuing that collaboration. Um, you know, at UWC East, I work with an unbelievably fantastic group of staff. I mean, Ian Deeth, who you interviewed last week, is absolutely top notch and Gavin Dinsdale as well. We work together as a, as a trio and then um, my extended um, activities team are, are superb. We, 
we don't at UWC have what we would call a hierarchy of leadership. It's very much a trans, uh, transformational style. So it's very distributed. So it wouldn't be like thinking, oh, right, Nick's at the top of the tree. You know, it's more we collaborate, we work together, and we action things together. So those are probably my key things about leadership and, and, and innovation, being innovated, innovative, not happy just to sit back and manage and be happy with what we're doing. I'm always kind of getting up in the morning and going, right, well, what else can we, what else can we do here? Um, you know, let's not just sit back and relax. You know, there's, there's always something new we can kind of bring to the party. Yeah, love that, Nick. So we've got their integrity, empathy, cultural diversity, and we've got our vulnerability as your core values. Yeah. Um, just thinking back then in your career, what's the best bit of leadership advice you've been given then that's helped you to develop those, those core values or role model those core values for you? Um, I think probably my current... Quite interesting because I'm, there's, I've had many different leaders, I suppose, over the years. I've had, like, I suppose, elite coaches while I was younger who kind of like taught me all about, and things that I still live by today on a daily basis, they've taught me about, um, uh, you know, really hard work pays off, you know, that sort of, you know, resilience, that kind of grit. Because, you know, we all know, we've probably all seen it, you know, as teachers and as coaches and as directors of sport. You know, you've seen many, many talented, talented students or athletes who fall by the wayside because they just don't have that resilience and grit. But you, you see many students who maybe are not at the top, but they really, really want it. So, you know, that's probably what some coaches taught me. But I suppose my current, my cur current um, line manager, who is my head of campus, I would say he's been kind of quite inspirational for me. And and his, his things that he talks about with me, which I find resonate, are all about prioritizing. You know, the advice of sort of like, be strategic, look at the things that actually do need action and what things you can actually let go of. Um, we're extremely busy people. Our inboxes are, you know, overflowing on a day-to-day -day basis. And being able to actually look at those, yeah, these are the things we want to focus on, those things, yeah. They're there, I can put them aside, or I can delegate and let somebody else dealing with that. So, so those are sort of key things. And, and, then, and then one other bit, and I, read, and I read this quite some time ago about, about leadership and it resonated as well. And it's sort of be the best that you can be with what you have. I mean, ultimately, that, that's, that's, what always, that's what we're always trying to do, you know, whether that's the kind of students that you have or the organization that you're working in or the facilities that you have or the environment or the country you're in. But just as a leader, trying to be the best that you can with what you have around you. Yeah. Well, and, and, and with those things that you've got around you at the minute, maybe there's some vulnerability to this question and, and maybe some humility. What, what are you working hard at improving at yourself at the moment? What's really at the top of your priority list? Um, so for me, I think, you know, in our leadership positions, I think something which is a continual for me is, is, is about conflict resolution. Um, you, you know, we're working, we're working a lot with kind of many different types of people, parents, community, coaches, students, and with that brings, brings along at times conflict, you know, and I, I don't know if any of you guys have ever done, or if there's anybody listening who's ever done the high five, the high five strength kind of, it's a strength, um, test to see where your strengths are 
Um, it's very interesting, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I'm sure we've all done the Myers-Briggs personality tests and so on, but the high five ones is an interesting one for strengths. Um, and I come out as somebody who's like a peace, a peacekeeper, so which, which is somebody who tries to as much veer away a little bit from conflict or try to, you know, you know, try to calm it down. And I think in some ways that's something that I, I, I continually am trying to work at and not become emotional about it because we're on the firing line quite a lot in our jobs. And I think, you know, being able to deal with those conflicts, being able to step away from it a little bit more objectively. So that's a key thing for me. Um, also, I suppose that idea of building that positive culture. I mean, I, I honestly believe culture is so important in any organization, um, having that positive culture. And it takes a huge amount of time to do that, but trying to build that and continually building that and aligning that with your core values is super important. Um, you know, and without that direction and purpose can, can be very, very difficult. Um, and then, and then w something I touched on a little bit before was about developing people's potential. I think sometimes, you know, as leaders, you know, and, and the, the busy lives that we have, we can get bogged down with the day to day, the kind of the, the, you know, the firefighting of things and actually sort of that idea of just, just standing back and actually creating and developing the people around you is ultimately going to help to develop your own leadership and it's gonna to help to develop the organization as a whole. So those are things which are continually on my mind and continually on a weekly basis I'm thinking about that, that I know that, that I have to develop and continue to do so. Give us some, uh, some suggestions on, on what you do with culture, Nick. What does that look like when you say you're developing a positive and a strong culture? Uh, well, culture is, you know, it's, a, it, it's quite difficult to do, um, but there's many, many ways we've tried to do it. We build it, we build it around a number of different things. We do um, at UWC, we do cognitive coaching. So the majority of us are cognitive coaching as, you know, we've done the course. So we work individually with people to try to work together and coach them through um, goals and so on. And then with that, um, develop, try to develop them along a line of the culture that we're thinking. We run, um, and I run, what we call effective teams. And with effective teaming, um, I try to build that around um, what our core values are. But ultimately, I want the staff to come up what, of, of, what, of what they are, even though I have them in my head, for them to come, come up with it. So we do workshops, brainstorming exercises, what makes an effective team? What do we see in a leadership of the effective team? What are the norms of collaboration that we want to build around that when we're working together as a team? And then ultimately with that, you're building that positive culture effect happening within those small organizations whether that's the gymnastics team of coaches or the swimming team of coaches or our dance program um, or wider afield, our, our, our big coaching um, um, or activity program. Culture is about um, us developing specific things. Giving ownership is a real key thing for me. Giving ownership to the coaches and the providers and feeling as though that they're empowered. So they're empowered in the process. So it's not, it's not a directional style like, you're going to coach this way. These are the expectations, these are the goals. It has to be a shared understanding and shared ownership towards that goal because ultimately then they, they feel a part of it. Do you, do you extend that ownership to the students at all? 
We do in the sense at the start of each season. So when it comes to sport, at the start of each season, we send out a shared document where they put down what do they want to see from the season. So what, what do they see there? They want to get out of it. As I said to start with, you know, for some people that might be, oh, I just want to get on the team or, or, I, or I want to improve my, I don't know, I want to improve my basketball dribble. I want to do this number of assists in, in the season, whatever that may be. And that is shared with the athletic directors and with the coaches. And that is, that is a starting point of a discussion which is had with the athlete and the coaches where they're trying to build on that model. So ultimately, hopefully, everybody on that team is aligned and the thinking is correct. So the, the, the culture has already been bought in because their voice is heard. Also, especially in the high school element, the, the student's voice is very, very important. So when it comes to halftime team talks, at the end of training sessions, the students are the ones who do the talking. They're the ones who are actually, you know, what did you think of training today? What do you think we could have done better? Um, you know, what, what success indicators did you see from that game? So ultimately we're asking them to come up with the answers rather than the, the coach is always right. And then the coach will jump in at the end and then try to bring it all together. So those are the sorts of ways that we're, we're trying to try to build this kind of positive culture and environment. Like that idea of the, the students' reflections. That's a really cool one, especially after, after training sessions, games, half times, etc. Yeah. And then at the end of the season, we do, a, we, we, do, um, we do a reflection piece with them again. And it's basically two questions. And it's, how much did you enjoy the season? And how, what, 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 if the season was, was happening again, what would you like to have seen improve or develop to make it better? So that side is our reflection on how we can make it better. So, we're, we're, so it's like that point of like never being stale, never being just managing a program, always trying to be dynamic, always trying to think of new things to make it better for student learning because that's what we're all about. We're, we're, that's why we're here, right? Exactly yeah. right. You're talking to the right people. You're preaching to the converter yeah. there of being better. That's everything that we're trying to work towards. Um, go on, Alan. Yeah, lots of ideas there are very similar to what I've been reading recently in John O'Sullivan's book, Every Moment Matters. It talks very much about student reflection in there. I, I just want to wind it down a little bit now, Nick, and we'll, we'll go towards our quickfire questions at the end. Um, if you could... Just look at your non-negotiables, Nick. What are your three main non-negotiables as a leader? And you've talked so much about building culture there. What are the things that you don't want to see? What are the things that you continually expect? Well, I think I kind of, I sort of like built a little bit as a leader. So a non-negotiable as a leader for me is number one is that integrity. That integrity piece, like basically that, you know, to, to, to that kind of links with culture, doesn't it? Because if you don't, if you don't have the integrity, if you don't have those moral principles, the, you just do not have that buy-in at all. Um, the belief will not be there the, with, with your whole entire organization or, or, or community. Um, and I think about um, probably a, a, a non-negotiable for me, I suppose, would be purpose. There has to be a purpose, you know, there's, you know, and, and you know, communities, um, you, know, they're, you know, and even students, you know, they're not silly. They, you know, they have to understand about the reasons why things are happening and why you're doing something for, for that. And, and the big picture, the purpose of why this is all happening needs to be key, especially 
that's something that I, I live by that, you know, I don't just take it along. There's a reason why this is happening. You know, there's a purpose to it all. And there's a, pur and there's a, a purpose to this part of the jigsaw with the bigger college, college wide um, goals as well. And then, and then I suppose for me, I would say, uh, finally, um, collaboration. Now, I probably wouldn't have said that at Shrewsbury, because <laughs> Shrewsbury, I was a one-man band. I don't know. I was director of sport activities there, but it was just me. And then, yeah, so it was, there was the PE department and so on, but I was a kind of a, a lone ranger. And uh, it was very much me, and I had an, um, had an admin team, but it was very much by myself. And since I came to UWC and the elements of collaboration – is just, I mean, it's just unbelievable. The success that you can have and the learning and what you can build on is, is just amazing. Even this morning, I was on a three-hour call with Gavin and Ian, and we're just, we're just sitting, just bouncing ideas off each other and trying to work together. It sounds like what you guys were like at BSM. You know, it's, it's basically when you work together in a really close-knit um, group where the, your values align, and you can work together, there's so much good that you can do and there's so much progress that you can make. So for me, those are my three top tips. No, great values, brilliant, thank you. What book are you reading at the moment? Uh, book, so I, I read lots of different ones, uh, different books. Um, the book that I'm actually reading at the moment is a book called Dear Life, actually, and, and it's, it's actually about um, it's actually written, um, I can't remember the, the lady's name now, but she's um, a doctor and she's a doctor which focuses on palliative care. So it's about palliative care and, you know, helping people at the end of their life. And it's just a super, super beautifully written, deeply thoughtful book, just about life and about experience and about what, what it means to be alive. So that kind of, it's, it's a really kind of, I don't know, it's just kind of one of those summer readings. My wife actually gave it me. My wife is like head of English literature, IB, so we've got lots of books at home. But yeah, I'm reading that at the moment. But a, a book, if we're talking about leadership, which I've just finished actually just prior to that, is um, a book called The Art of Possibility. I don't know if you've ever touched on that one, guys, but it's, it's, made, it's actually written by um, uh, a husband and wife, um, Xander. And it's, he's actually a, a conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, and she is actually a psychologist. But the way it is written, it's so beautifully written, and it, it kind of touches on things. I don't know if you've read um, The Culture Code, which yeah, is a great book. I love The Culture Code. Um, but it kind of takes some parts of The Culture Code, but then it looks at it a slightly different twist and comes up with some real key learning areas about how you can just be a better person and be a better leader, but in, in a simple, simple way. So that, that's, that's a really, really great book out there if anybody is, is looking for something to look at in terms of, um, in terms of uh, leadership. Um, and I'm just about to start to read. It's part of our leadership team reading over the, over the holidays. And, and we've got a workshop in August, and that's basically how to be an anti-racist. And that's from Ibram ex Kendall and it's looking how we can build a society um, about this, which is obviously really key right now with, with uh, lots of things that are going on. Yeah, so some great suggestions there. I like the sound of the art of possibility. I haven't come across that one. And uh, a short, short book, you'll absolutely love it, Lewis. And the ones that put things into perspective a bit, I'm a huge fan of them. The Dear Life sounds right up my street. Just, you know, stop, pause a minute and actually yeah. put things in perspective and go back to what you were talking earlier about 
you know, priorities and, and being a man of integrity. Yeah, top, top man, three really good recommendations there. I think we'll, we'll move on to Alan's favourite question. Um, three <laughs> leaders, past or present, that you'd, uh, you'd take out for a, a beer or a bite to eat. <laughs> I, 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 I listened to you doing this with Ian last week as well. Um, it's a, it's, it is a hard one, this one, actually, because it's depending, you know, if they were together or if it's individual and so on. So I, I, I was, it's, a, it's a tough one. Okay, some, something might sound a little bit political, but something for me, obviously I'm from Northern Ireland. I grew up in the, you know, I'm a 70s, I'm a 70s child, but grew up in Belfast in the 80s. Very, I suppose, quite tough time, you know, during the conflict and so on. And there was um, the Secretary of State in the early 90s was somebody called Mo Molan. Yeah. Might, be, might be, you know, I'm not sure if you remember her, but yeah. Mo Molan was um, the Secretary of State at that time. And basically, she got our two political sides to come together who were in conflict for over 200 years. <laughs> and she put the party's interests before her own, and she actually set up what we call the Good Friday Agreement and actually, um, you know, stopped, basically stopped the fighting in Northern Ireland. So Mo Mullen to me is, is an unbelievable kind of person who in actual fact maybe didn't get, didn't get the, 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 the achievement and celebration that she deserved, but superb woman and unfortunately died, died of cancer not that long after the, the Good Friday Agreement um, was, was happened. But she went into a place where there was ethnic hatred and actually, closed the deal in 1997, which really changed, changed the face of Northern Ireland. So that's a personal one for me. Yeah, that's a, I tell you what, that's a belt. I, I went to Belfast for the first time um, this last Christmas um, and, and saw a lot of these areas up close, you know, mm. the, the different religious areas and the different troubles between them. And I, I was amazed that that was, you know, you're talking 20, 20 30 years ago, not, not 200 years ago. Well, this is it. Yeah, there's an amazing park outside Stormont uh, called the Mo Molan Park, and it's a, just a, a place you can take your kids. And every time I go there with my kids, it's just a little thought, you know, for her because she's a superb person. Um, who, who else? Who else? Okay, let me think. Um, another one, Lee Kuan Yew, who's basically the first prime minister ever of Singapore. He, the, he was the person really who had the vision and put policies, I suppose, in place to develop this fantastic country and where it is today and a, a GDP per capita greater than the US. Um, but even more important, the cultural diversity, which he respected and came together within Singapore, um, is, is something which many, many countries could, could learn from. So, I think he would be a really, really interesting person just to discuss about how he came up with the ideas, how he came up with that vision, and really, I suppose, that purpose, you know, which we talked about, you know, that, and, and, and how that happened. Um, and then, I suppose, the last one for me, coming from a sports background, it would be somebody, I suppose, who has been a great leader. I mean, Joe Schmidt, probably for me, Ireland, didn't do so well in the world, you know, in the World Cup last year. But actually, previous to that, made Ireland what they were the year before. You know, they were, um, you know, pretty much, you know, top three in the world in rugby. And just, just sitting down with him and just finding out that that cultural shift and that change which he produced in Irish rugby, which has had a very strong t tradition of rugby, but it's always been really kind of the underdogs and creating this kind of creating this kind of element where. 
actually we're kind of we're one of the world world leaders. So I think he would be a really interesting kind of person to chat to as well. So those are my those are my three interesting uh, leaders. A very eclectic mix. Top man, Dunny. Thank you very much, pal. Uh, it's been a pleasure to chat to you as ever. Always very insightful and, and thought provoking. So thanks very much for your time. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. It's been awesome. Um, guys, please remember to search Infinite Leaders Live on YouTube and IGTV. And we're also pleased to announce that we're now on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So please share far and wide with anybody that you think will find our episodes interesting. And please remember to visit infinitelearners.com where you'll find everything you need in one place in terms of our Infinite Leaders Live shows, webinars, articles, weekly journal notes, and anything and everything else that we feel might help you in being better educators and being better humans. Cheers, guys. I'll see you next time. Cheers, guys. Thank you.